0: Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast, brought to you by Dolly Alderson and Pandora Sykes.
1: I have a lovely article to share with you that a friend cut out and sent to me from the New York Times last week. You
0: told me on the Hilo experience. (laughs) live in action tour that you didn't like it when people cut things out from articles and sent it to you you found it bossy
1: it's so short it's so short I just want you to know that you're inconsistent basically I don't know why this is I don't like it about me at all I really don't like it about me unless it's a Spotify link or a link to a song when someone says please go on to this not only do I not want to I hate them for asking me (laughs) I've realised that actually the best way
0: to get you to click on something is to write this is mad
1: do I always respond when when? You yeah because you
0: always want to see what's mad that's interesting if
1: I said like this is really interesting or this is really lovely never nah so you're clickbaiting me basically <laughs> you say to me what, I, you, it's you, called you, reading the WhatsApp, room on whatsapp you send you'll send me a message saying if you click on this you will be shocked at what you see <laughs> you won't believe what they look like now <laughs> I do often click on those. Anyway, tell me about your New York Times. The article is called Here to Help, How Friendships Can Help Your Health. Most of the research on health and relationships is focused on romantic partners, but researchers have found that our friendships actually have a bigger impact on our health. Here are some of the findings about the health benefits of having friends. A 10-year Australian study found that older people with a large circle of friends were 22% less likely to die during the study period than those with fewer. In a six year study of 736 middle aged Swedish men, being attached to a life partner didn't affect the risk of heart attack and fatal coronary heart disease, but having friendships did. Friendships make aging easier. Dan Butner, a National Geographic fellow and author, had studied the health habits of people who live in regions of the world where people live far longer than the average. He found that positive friendships are a common theme. In Okinawa, Japan, where the average life expectancy for women is around 90, the highest in the world, People form a kind of social network called a Maui, a group of five friends who offer social, logistic, emotional and even financial support for a lifetime. In a Maui, the group benefits when things go well and the group's families support one another. They also appear to influence one another's lifelong health behaviours.
0: I love that about the social network of five. I think we have that here, just unlike the Japanese, we don't have a name for everything. It's called a WhatsApp group. And I have a few nice little facts for you, doll, from the week. We are having a cassette tape revival. The number of tapes sold is expected to hit hundred thousand this year. I think it's
1: Fey millennial nostalgic girls like me trying to woo boys with their whimsy. I mean it's nothing
0: compared to the eighty three million that were sold in nineteen eighty nine. So it's sort of fairly a fairly small comeback. What,
1: what do you think that revival what do you think that says? Do you think it's do you think it's just this like appetite for nostalgia? I think it must be.
0: I think it must be the same people that maybe buy um, Old copies of magazines or comics or... Polaroid cameras and... Polaroid cameras, maybe. Maybe it's yeah. just people in East London. Just everyone <laughs> in East London's but one cassette each. And Greg's has been mocked for its diet donut. Have you seen the diet donut? No, I haven't. It is a donut with a hole in the middle.
1: Isn't that all donuts? It's just a ring donut. <laughs>
0: Mind you, is that that different from Pizza Express's Legere? Legere. Yeah, it's just it's just a crust basically with salad in the middle. It makes me laugh that it's a lighter option. It's a lighter option because there is quite literally less pizza.
1: Dear old Pizza Express, though, we shouldn't go too hard on them with the week they've had. More on that later. We also couldn't let this episode go by without mention of the story everyone's been talking about this week, which is of course Rod's railway. (laughs) We couldn't have let this episode go by. The BBC reports with the headline, I am railing. The Times went for, Sir Rod lays down a few new tracks. I like that one. For anyone unaware, Sir Rod Stewart has been working on a massive, intricate model of a US city for the past 23 years. He unveiled it as part of an interview last week with Railway Modeler magazine. He then phoned into the Jeremy Vine show to rebuke the host's suggestion that he had not built it himself. I would say 90% of it I built myself, he insisted. The only thing I wasn't very good at and still am not is the electricals, so I had someone else to do that. Rod Stewart has released 13 studio albums and been on 19 tours during the time it took him to build the city which is modelled on both New York and Chicago around 1945 A lot of people laugh at it being a silly hobby but it's a wonderful hobby, he said He told Railway Modeler he worked on the skyscrapers and other scenery while on tour requesting an extra room for his constructions in his hotels We would tell them in advance and they were really accommodating taking out the beds and providing fans To improve air circulation and ventilation. He's totally wacky, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole chapter about it in his uh, autobiography. That is really wacky. Where he gets very, very upset when people call model railways train sets, which he says are two very different things.
0: And also, he doesn't do loads of
1: interviews, does he? Probably quite hard to pin down for press. Yeah. And he's done one for Railway Modeler. Yeah, he takes it very, very seriously. Do you remember there was that story a few months ago that we talked about where there was a model railway club that got looted and he donated a huge amount of money? I wonder why you buy Railway Modeler. I imagine it's a subscription service. But actual model railways and building them is like a lucrative... It's so expensive to do it if you do it properly. Have you seen a picture of the, of the city he's built? Yes, it's very impressive. It's so big. I can't, I
0: almost can't get my head around the perspective of it. It's so big. The other hobby, I think, older, I won't call him old, I know you'll prickle. (laughs) Older men seem to be quite into, which I think is, again, a whole sort of massive world of its own, is painting tiny, like, war figurines? Warhammer. Is it? Is that what it's called?
1: Yeah. Ben Alderton, God love him, was very into Warhammer, and I spent... Every weekend as an adolescent, just waiting for him outside the games workshop, Watford. Sometimes I'd go in because the men in there looked like they'd never, ever seen a girl. So it was a very easy way of getting a quick attention boost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The world's first vagina museum has opened in North London.
1: Finally. North London?
0: Where? Camden, I think. You're joking. Its director, Florence Schechter, said that she had discovered a penis museum in Iceland. I'm familiar with that one, actually. <laughs> but no vagina equivalent anywhere, and so she decided to make one. The first exhibition, which will run until the end of February, is called Muffbusters: Vagina myths and how to fight them. My favourite is when she was asked by The Guardian for more reasons about why she decided to set it up, and she just said, I just love the vag. <laughs> And they printed that. <laughs> you know where to find me on my maternity leave. Please, you can have a cup of tea at mine afterwards. We can go have a little mosey round the vagus. <laughs> and in more serious news, speaking of galleries, the artist Nan Golden led a protest at the V&A over donations from the Sackler family. I've previously relayed on the podcast that Nan Golden did not go ahead with an exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery because it continued to accept donations from the Sacklers, The National Portrait Gallery have now agreed not to accept any more donations, as have the Tate the Serpentine, the Louvre, the Met and Guggenheim. For anyone unfamiliar, the Sackler family own Purdue Pharmaceutical who produce OxyContin, which is considered the biggest contributor towards America's opioid crisis of the last 30 years, I think. And the reason why so many people became hooked on heroin. So um, OxyContin was prescribed as a kind of very straightforward painkiller after not even necessarily a major operation. could be something like having your knee done um, and people could get fatally addicted within 14 days Mm. and then when the doctor wouldn't give them any more that's how it then led to uh, heroin and it is considered the biggest contributor towards um, America's opioid crisis. I really recommend incidentally a book called Dope Sick by Beth Macy which I think I've recommended Mm. before Nan herself is a recovering OxyContin addict and so she's really passionate about this she's a staunch campaigner against art galleries and other cultural institutions accepting donations from the Sackler family which puts a lot of these galleries in a tricky position it's not always easy to get funding and the Sacklers are minted and they donate a lot of money to cultural institutions pretty much every cultural institution you can think of has had a Sackler donation at some point and millions each time the Sacklers are said to have made 13 billion from OxyContin over the years oh my God. they deny their pivotal role in the opioid crisis but they're actually currently embroiled in what could be the world's largest ever settlement from a drug company which would total 3 billion and involves really interesting. I think thousands of communities and more than two dozen states in America have come together uh, to sue and if they lose the case, Purdue would be restructured as a public company anyway it 's really interesting mm. stuff, and I can totally understand why um, why Nan is putting herself at the forefront mm. of yeah. this. Also, thoughts with Venice and Doncaster, who have been devastated by biblical downpours this week. Have you seen the pictures? No, I haven't. The flood in Venice is the worst since 1872, and institutions, including St Mark's Basilica, has sadly been damaged. It's a World UNESCO heritage site, and the mayor of uh, Venice has opened up like a sort of crisis fund for it.
1: Um, And what's going to happen to Venice? I do worry about Venice. I imagine it's on borrowed time. I just really felt when I was last there, it's just this like precious jewel of a place that's in just the most urgent need of preservation. I don't I don't feel like it's not preserved, but I do feel like
0: surely rising water levels. I mean, I'm not the expert on this, but it can't carry on as is forever, can it? News from Doll's Polls. I'd expect nothing less.
1: Avon UK reveals top female role models of the last 60 years with Emma Watson named the nation's favourite.
0: Interesting, after self-partner.
1: I was going to say, I hope
0: her and her partner went out for a lovely celebratory dinner. Bitchy. (laughs) Number two, Queenie. Number three's got to be Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren's always there.
1: Number three, J.K. Rowling. I agree with that. Number four, Kate Middleton. Number five, Dame Jessica Ennis Hill. Number six, Dame Judi Dench. Number 7, Joanna Lumley. She'd be in my top 5. Mm, mm. Number 8, Victoria Beckham. Number 9, Dame Helen Mirren. 10, Amal Clooney. 11, Zoella. 12, <laughs> Helen Sharman. Nicola Adams. Vivian Westwood. Dua Lipa. She's a pop star. Yes, I know. Found out last month. You look confused. Ellen MacArthur. Paula Radcliffe. Bit of a rogue one. Theresa May. Stella McCartney. Alex Scott. Bit of a motley crew of a lineup there I'd say. Without well, being I actually, disparaging. I actually think less
0: motley than most of those less motley than most dolls polls, actually. <laughs> less motley than most. Most of those in fact all of those women are hugely accomplished and Of course,
1: but it's just quite a
0: random lineup, I think. But could there ever be a roundup where you would be like
1: yes? those are the 20 they've nailed it yeah. those are the twenty. Women. I suppose and everyone looks for inspiration in different things don't they Who would, is there anyone missing for you on that list Zadie I think's missing Zadie Smith Miss Piggy if I'm being totally honest uh,
0: I think Helena Morrissey is pretty great I'd probably put her in and uh, Malala 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 should be in if Zoella's in I think it should be Malala, That Miss sounds Piggy. like they are the same, <laughs> they do the same thing, Malala and Zoella. I
1: love Malala's beauty hacks.
0: Oh my God, I thought you were being serious and I was like, how have I missed them?
1: <laughs> I'm not being guilty really for Zoella, I know she's very accomplished. Uh, yeah, Malala, for me, Malala, Emma Thompson, Zadie Smith, Miss Piggy. Um, I mean, I love Chimamanda as well, Chimamanda. but now we're going a bit all three, aren't we? I was thrilled to read that one listener got in touch to confirm that pigs really do eat bones. And not only that, they apparently make an extremely effective accomplice when disposing of a body. Apparently it's the most reliable way to dispose of a body without a trace. It's a bit creepy. It's horrid. The journalist Vicky Spratt got in touch to
0: tell us about Refinery29's campaign to get the abortion law changed. Now, this may be confusing. I was confused at first because abortion in the UK is legal. But in a nutshell, when the 1967 Abortion Act came in, it legislated over the top of a Victorian law from 1861 called Offences Against the Person Act, which wasn't actually repealed. So abortion, while legal, is still technically a criminal offence. And experts say it's why we still have to have two doctors sign off on an abortion which can lead to uh, delays and it also reinforces stigma around abortion and so they want to see the law updated refinery 29 are campaigning for the complete decriminalization of abortion and you can sign their petition on change.org we'll link in the show notes how interesting yeah i had no idea either also, it's almost time to start thinking about your Christmas cards. We learned of some lovely ones to send this week by artists who paint using their mouth or their toes due to accident, illness or disability. For over 60 years, the mouth and foot painting artists have partnered with disabled artists, reproducing their original paintings as greeting cards and calendars, which helps bring vital security to artists across the world. There are currently 33 British artists and almost 800 artists across 80 countries worldwide. And you can buy the cards at www mfpa.co.uk I'll link that in the show notes What have you been enjoying this week Panda? I read a lovely short story on the Paris Review called The Crane Wife I love that story Apparently
1: it had quite a lot of buzz around it when it came out in July How did Mm. I miss this? It's um, so vividly written I almost remember it as a short film in my head it was so vividly written all the characters that she meets and could totally be a short film Mm. Get in touch with her.
0: Make it. I mean, it's a whisper of a short story. It's very short. <laughs> <laughs> um, and written by the author CJ Hauser about leaving her fiancé, who she had totally remoulded herself for. And not to put too fine a point on it, he sounds like a bit of a dick, doesn't he? Yeah. She. There's lots of... Um, but a very, like, recognisable dick, I think. There's lots of quite powerful lines like... She says, don't I look nice in this dress? And he said, well, I told you you looked nice in that dress last year, so by extension, I would still think you looked nice in it.
1: (laughs) When I read that, I remember thinking that there's such a danger that I could end up marrying someone like that, I think, and it would be such travesty if I did.
0: And there were some some really touching moments in it, though. She talks about how her future mother-in-law made um, really beautiful stockings all the family with Beatrix Potter mm. characters on them. Mm. And she asked uh, CJ what character she wanted to be. And she chose a squirrel with a red cloak because she felt like she was, because it felt like she was, you know, vital and um, sort of vibrant and all mm. these things. And she got given a mouse in an apron, I think. yeah, And she said, you know, I I didn't want to be rude. Like, I love my, not quite mother-in-law, and I, and I love that she made me a stocking, but... Either I don't know who I am, or she doesn't know who I am. And the title, The Crane Wife, comes from about halfway through. CJ describes a tale from Japanese folklore um, about a crane, which is a bird, who plucks all her feathers out to pretend that she's human, to make a man fall in love with her. And every single night, to keep up the facade, she... Doesn't sleep. She exhausts herself plucking all of her feathers out. And CJ says, "You know, this is an example of the lengths of self-erasure that women will go to in order to mold themselves into who their partner thinks they should be—to be loved." Yeah. And it's um, oh, it's just really readable and it's, simple, it's, and I,
1: it's yeah, and so moving.
0: And I think that really shows just how well, actually, as well. In fiction you can write very um it is poetic but not in like a i feel like a lot of the stuff you can read on the paris review can be quite like weighty to read this is a very easy read um it's very contemporary but then i think it shows that you can weave in a bit of folklore and it doesn't suddenly make it really abstract no. or really hard to understand um, anyway i thought it was really gorgeous and i will link to that in the show notes Um, slightly different note bloody loved the Naomi Campbell interview in The Guardian by Nosheen Iqbal Um, I don't think I've ever read an interview with her before I haven't I loved her after this the title of it is so good I will not be held hostage to my past boom you should get that on a cushion doll yeah yeah (laughs) I think she's probably referring to the phone throwing incidents and when she was given blood diamonds by Charles Taylor which she said she assumed were dirty rocks Mm. Um, there's quite a lot in Naomi's past that people bring up Um, but she's just really articulate and interesting and as I said I hadn't read an interview with her before she mentioned a term I hadn't heard as well balanced inclusion so she said she refused to do a fashion show cast exclusively with black women even though it was loads of money because it's not something that feels sustainable to her she says you know I don't want to go from being the only black woman yes. in a room to being only in a room
1: with black women because that feels to me like it's a trend that's kind of what Bernadine Evaristo was saying in that Guardian long read that we talked about the other week isn't it, is that we have to look at a way for inclusion to feel more than a radical fad
0: she's quite self-helpy and clearly she's not someone you want to get on the wrong side of but she says a lot of things that I found really pertinent for our time like we're all growing here trying to get it right this time round No one is perfect. And I was really interested by the way she discussed the fact that the Mail on Sunday ran pictures of her with Weinstein and Epstein with questions of how much she knew. And she said, I've met thousands of people at events and been photographed with them. There are pictures of me with everyone. Are you going to single me out when there are hundreds of people pictured with the same people who you don't care to mention? Do me a fucking favour. I won't sit here and roll over and take that shit. We know what that's about. I've seen how they treat Raheem Sterling, how they speak about Lewis Hamilton and Serena Williams. So she kind of really decimates that as like a weird distraction technique. Like Naomi Campbell in a picture with Weinstein is somehow the same as Prince Andrew with his arm round Virginia Roberts. And what what she calls for is nuance, kind of nuance and um, understanding and... I learnt loads about her charity work in Africa as well, that that she's been doing since 1994. Anyway, there's just... It kind of made me wish she'd done more interviews. Perhaps she doesn't care about whether or not people understand her. You know, it sounds like she understands herself. Did you like her by the end of it? I think I did like her, but I wouldn't even... I don't even know if like was sort of the important bit. I was really intrigued by her, and she was a woman with such substance and such uh, individual... Opinions, and I think does so much more um, lobbying and thinking behind the scenes than people realise. And I think it's very, very rare to read an interview with a model like that. Mm. Not because I don't think models are like that. There are plenty of very intelligent models, but they don't normally feel kind of able, I think, to express themselves like that. I would love to see the equivalent of that interview with Kate Moss. I was about to say. God Tell us everything about. about I mean... Naomi doesn't really talk about her love life, actually, but I just want to know about Johnny Depp and Pete Doherty and all of that.
1: I think give it 20 years and there's going to be a really iconic Elton John-style tasty memoir from Mossy.
0: I would ghostwrite that for free.
1: You heard it here first, Mossy.
0: Anything else you've enjoyed? I gobbled up a book called Hood Feminism Notes from the Women White Feminists Forgot by Mickey Kendall. It comes out in January next year and I've been trying not to do that annoying thing of mentioning books that come out ages away but will be on maternity leave so I wouldn't be able to talk about it if I was still February so you can pre-order it. It's absolutely brilliant. The titles are incredibly snappy for each chapter. The way she takes down various cultural assumptions and trends um with such levity but also obviously it's an incredibly political book covers everything from the dangerous assumption that black women don't suffer from eating disorders to the fetishization of the word fierce I was particularly moved by a chapter called Parenting While Marginalised where Mickey reveals that when she had her baby people would talk to her white ex-husband rather than to her even though she was the primary care provider and would be the one holding the baby in these appointments and she talks extensively and movingly about the idea that poor parents cannot be good parents and that assets are somehow more important than love. And it's just an eminently readable and interesting book. I haven't read something like it, and I think every mm. woman should go read it. So yeah. go forth.
1: What about you, doll? I loved Roxanne Gay's essay, I Write in Pockets of Stolen Time, which is about her changing relationship with writing as her career has progressed. And what I really realised when I was reading it is that writing and you'll know this as well in the In the middle of a, writing a book, that writing is a relationship and the relationship between writer and the process of writing is one that kind of changes all throughout your life dependent on your schedule and where you are and crucially, your financial stability. And that's something that she really digs into. Firstly, she talks about how writing for her was an illicit thing. Um, and that she would do it in the evenings and she would do it in these kind of stolen moments of time and and she talked about how she became obsessed with the kind of process of being a writer and what it was to be a writer so she would smoke to look like a writer because when she didn't have the satisfaction of being published what she needed instead was the satisfaction of going through all the motions of being a writer. Um, she then talks about being given a book deal and having 10 hours a day of just undisturbed time of writing a, a novel and what a privilege and, w- and what bliss that was after having to fight so hard to have some space to write. And then she talks about the trickier bit, which is balancing her career as a writer and the writing, which I've talked about before, Renie Edo-Lodge has talked about before very articulately. Those two things, being a career writer and being a writer, are in, at total odds with each other. She writes, along the way, I learned that the more you succeed as a writer, the less time you have to actually think or read or write. I learned there is the business of writing and writing itself, and they are two very different things. Writing is an act of creation, and the business of writing is doing everything in your power to ensure that you will have the opportunity to create again. I loved her ending, which I think will be reassuring for lots of writers who feel like they have to fight uh, both other people and themselves to return to what they love. And it's very pertinent, reminded to me that if you write, And if this is what you've dedicated your life and brain to, or part of your life and brain to, that it goes beyond enjoyment. It's a need, and it's a survival technique, and it's a way that you experience the world. It's like that in a Nin quote, we, we write to taste life twice. And I think Roxane Gay definitely is one of those writers. The way that she makes sense of life is on the page. Yes, I still write every day, but on so many days, the fact of that writing is tenuous. At the end of a long day, when I finally get a chance to open my laptop, I scroll mindlessly on Twitter or read the news or try to answer a few emails. Then I remember I'm a writer who should be writing. So I open up a Microsoft Word file for any given project and read what I've previously written to orient myself. I tap out a few lines. I procrastinate some more. I tap out a few more lines. I tell myself I've written for the day and have therefore done as I was counseled to do so long ago. What I crave more than anything is the luxury of those times when I start to write. And though I don't yet know the shape of what will come, I write my way forward. I remember that the joy of these moments is the only thing that truly makes me a writer.
0: I love that Anne Nin quote. I think that's so true. And presumably then when you reread what you've written, you can taste life three times. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: I also love Taffy brodessa Ackner's interview with Tom Hanks. Have you read it yet? No, but she is, as we know, the the great
0: celebrity interviewer. I was rereading her one with Gwyneth Paltrow this week.
1: Oh, she's so good. I think this might be her best ever interview. No. Yeah, it's so moving. It made me cry by the final paragraph. Is he a nice guy? He's a nice guy. Spoiler alert. I mean, everyone's in love with Tom Hanks. It's a beautiful interview and it showcases him as an actor and a man very well. But it also is an incredible showcase for Taffy as an interviewer. And I think it's the best example I've ever read of a celebrity interview where there's a very, very low in the mix narrative thread of Taffy in the piece, which is the fact that Taffy finds herself in a difficult moment of her life. She said she was depressed when she was researching this piece and when she was spending time with Tom Hanks. And she's not hugely specific why. It sounds like she's kind of in despair about the state of the world generally, but that she's also having some sort of personal issues. And she, it, it's so difficult to bring yourself into those profiles as a journalist without obstructing the view of the subject. But it's so essential to the telling of the story of who Tom Hanks is, the way that she brings her own self into it. And it's just a masterpiece. I don't think I'll ever read a celebrity interview where the journalist is woven in quite so perfectly.
0: Yeah, because you're definitely sort of meant to think that the profiler is almost invisible. Exactly. Um, And sometimes it can be a sort of arrogance to inject yourself. But it sounds like... The way she did it, and she did it with Gwyneth Paltrow actually as well, is that she sort of represents more than just her. So in the Gwyneth Paltrow one, she represented all the people who feel like they are less because of wellness, Mm. whereas more. um, And so she played a kind of quite vital role in it as a larger narrative. That's exactly,
1: you've put it perfectly, because she does the same with the Tom Hanks piece. What she does is she offers herself up as an example through her personal state of mind where she is in her life when she meets him as the effect, the Tom Hanks effect, of the effect that spending time with this man or watching his movies or reading his work, the effect that that has on a person and she offers herself up as the representative canvas for the reader and I just can't, I think it's the most exquisite celebrity interview I've ever read. I can't recommend it highly enough. She talks a lot about the whole kind of nice guy thing that surrounds Tom Hanks. And she kind of probes into that, debunks that, questions parts of that. She speaks to everyone who's worked with him, uh, lots of famous people who know him. She speaks to Meg Ryan at one point who describes him as astronomically curious she speaks to Sally Field, who says that... I think she describes him as once-in-a-lifetime Tom or one-of-a-kind Tom. Um, and he also has a, a, an obsession with typewriters that's very famous. He collects typewriters. It's in the front of his book, a typewriter, isn't Yeah. It? And Sally Field told Taffy that when they were in production on Forrest Gump, he wrote a weekly newsletter about the happenings amongst the cast and crew.
0: Where can we read that? I just that? Loved, I know. Do you think it was a mailer? Do you think it was like an email to friends and family? No, I think it was to circulate like a little local
1: paper on production. Well, Which is the just... British Library's got a copy of Amazing, that. Amazing, <laughs> isn't it? And then the bit of the interview where it kind of really picks up a different pace and takes on a new meaning is when Taffy's talking to him about parenthood. He has four children and he himself came from quite a dysfunctional Um, upbringing and she's talking about the fact her kids are moving away from childhood and into adolescence and how she's feeling a change in them and that everything she says to them feels like it's a criticism through their eyes suddenly and somehow she can feel this thing that she thought she'd be able to control where she's gone from being the adored and her presence being exciting to being as as it is with all adolescent children becoming something that they sort of want to break away from and she asks for his insight on that and he replies it isn't easy being a parent not for any of us he said somewhere along the line I figured out the only thing really I think eventually a parent can do is say I love you there's nothing you can do wrong you cannot hurt my feelings I hope you will forgive me on occasion and what do you need me to do you offer that to them I will do anything I can possibly do in order to keep you safe that's it Offer that up and then just love them. He looked at me for my next question and when he saw my face, he said, "Okay, go ahead. I'm right here for you, Taffy. It's good to cry. It's good to talk.
0: Oh, my God, the Tom Hanks effect. Mm. It's good to talk. It's good to cry. I remember reading an interview with Taffy when um, she wrote the very successful... She wrote the novel this summer, which was sort of, you know, proclaimed to be like the novel of 2019. So she was interviewed which must be quite strange for an interviewer. Yes. She was interviewed a lot herself and um, people said, and one, I remember reading in one interview, someone said, do you keep in touch with your subjects? Because these are, you know, massive profiles. You spend a lot of time with them. A lot of time. That's what you get from this Tom Hanks one. It's a real immersion. She said, which I really love, but I'm paraphrasing. She basically said, she was like, what's in it for me? <laughs> you know, like I, I, I'm i the kind of silent partner in this that's no that's no kind of light motif for friendship no but hearing you say that I'm right here
1: for you Taffy they've got to stay in touch I know I know I mean I like the rest of the world was already in love with Tom Hanks but I challenge anyone to read this and not fall 50% more in love with him
0: oh Tom Hanks effect I
1: can't mm-hmm. wait to read that thanks for flagging doll support for the hilo comes from sniff sniff is a new mail order service that introduces you to fragrances based on what you already like every month every month they send you an eight milliliter bottle of fragrance and if you love the scent then you can buy a full-sized bottle To use Sniff, go onto the website and fill out a survey about the perfume, or perfumes that you wear.
0: For me, that was Santal by Lalabo and Molecule 01, and then based on that information, they send you a small bottle of fragrance in one of their super cool mini-matte Sniff bottles. You can
1: choose the colour, they're matte and rather chic, and so small and light, you can take it to the gym, or even slip it in your pocket. Sniff has six different collections, for women, men, and unisex. My fragrances are from the Female Classics range, whilst Pandora's are from the Avant-Garde. Sniff gives
0: you the chance to try new fragrances without having to fork out on a giant bottle and then waste the rest if it's not for you because you could like a smell on someone else but not on yourself. It's also a great Christmas present because the recipient gets to try something new every month and very often they're scents that you would never have come across. I hadn't heard of either of mine, although they do also have all of your usual fragrance big dogs as well.
1: Sniff's subscription starts at £14 a month Visit sniff.co.uk spelled S-N-I-P-H and hurry because there is a 25% discount for the Hilo listeners for your first month as a subscriber. Use Hilo in the discount box. Thank you very much to Sniff. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. This past weekend marked a national TV viewing experience and a historical moment of disaster for the royal family. It was, of course, Prince Andrew being interviewed by Emily Maitlis at Buckingham Palace for a Newsnight special about his relationship with convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein and allegations which have been made against him over his own conduct. The interview, which lasted just under an hour, has been universally acknowledged as not only unsympathetic and offensive, but an embarrassment. I'm sure our listeners will already be familiar with the car crash interview, but its worst moment included defending his weekend stay with Epstein after he was convicted as a sex offender because he wanted to end their friendship properly, describing Epstein and his criminal actions as unbecoming and crucially acknowledging nothing of the victim's experiences and shifting all focus of the interview to a string of defensive, self-aggrandising and slightly bizarre statements, most extraordinarily, that he is too honourable. Since the interview on Saturday, students of the University of Huddersfield have called for his role of Chancellor to be removed and accountancy firm KPMG has withdrawn its sponsorship for the Prince's entrepreneurial pitch at the Palace scheme. The story continues to develop. Another woman has come forward to accuse Jeffrey Epstein of sexually abusing her as a 15-year-old and has called for Prince Andrew to share information on his former friend. She told reporters she suffered a vicious, prolonged sexual assault. Pandora, which bits did you find most astonishing?
0: Oh, man, too many. That he had a medical condition which meant he didn't sweat and that as a member of the royal family he didn't do PDA. And then the internet, God bless the internet, vomited up dozens of pictures of him sweatily grinding with women in nightclubs. Yeah. Uh, that he didn't know where the bar was in Tramps, as he kept calling it, even though Emily Maitlis kept calling it Tramp. So he couldn't have bought anyone a drink so he didn't know where the bar was. That he had no memory of meeting anyone or anything or really doing anything at all for the last 20 years except he could remember explicitly and specifically a night in question in 2001 where he was said to be with Virginia Roberts and that that night he was at Pizza Express in Woking I mean it's no laughing matter don't get me wrong but the claims themselves are laughable I don't do PDA is particularly
1: great his nickname is Randy Andy His total lack of self-awareness has been somewhat proven by a number of reports that state that he thought the interview had gone really well. Apparently, the morning after the interview, he attended church with the Queen and described the interview as a great success. I also read in another report that he said, mission accomplished, and was said to be in a buoyant mood. In a piece of the Times, Emily Maitlis wrote a brilliant and very detailed account of her side of the interview in which she describes the day of filming and the lead up to it moment by moment. I wish she was on Twitter, Emily Maitlis. He does not seem particularly nervous, she writes, as they set up the cameras and mics. He doesn't seem like a man who's about to decide his own fate in an on-camera interview. She then goes on to talk about how candid he actually seemed to her. In person, he is courteous, affable and eager to please. There is no question that he shies away from no issue with which he refuses to engage. Indeed, I reflect afterwards that there have been more riders and red lines drawn in the interviews I've done with C-list celebrities and backbench politicians than with the Queen's reportedly favourite son. Interesting. From an interviewer's perspective, he has been everything you could ask, approachable and expansive, polite and generous with his time. He has given me fresh detail, new thoughts, and told me things I'd certainly never heard before. It is what we want from every encounter. It is what we long to hear. She then goes on to say that as she left, he referred to the next time that she's there to do an interview and he said that they should talk about his entrepreneurial schemes. So he... Thought there would be a next time.
0: There might be another interview. It seems a good time to remind people how much less Emily Maitlis was paid than the other BBC employees. When the list of 96 most paid was leaked in 2017, she wasn't even on it, and now she's conducting the interview of the year. I think she's just a mastermind. I think people are a bit in love with Emily Maitlis, aren't mm. they? She's a brilliant interviewer. She's steely but gentle, mm. which is a winning combination, I think. Softly spoken, but totally direct. And I thought this line was really powerful. Unbecoming, he was a sex offender. Mm.
1: You could see the horror on her face. And that's the mark of a a very good interviewer, because that was the faces that were reflected on TV screens. She was being the the kind of mirror for the audience at that point. I couldn't believe when he said that. And then what did he say in reply that he was trying to be polite? It was so muddling to watch as a as a viewer, as well, because
0: obviously you can't remember everything, as you know, especially he's not a young man anymore, and we're talking ages ago. So there will be elements that he can't remember, but obviously he's going to remember most of what he said he couldn't remember. Mm. But it just meant because he was sort of giving, ostensibly giving this utter transparency, as she says, he didn't avoid any questions, mm. he wanted to probe every query. So it becomes this really confusing relationship with truth where I think he believes. Certainly I think he's aware that he's obfuscating at times but I think then he also believes his own truth at other times and then, oh, truth is just such a head fuck of a concept this whole interview.
1: Yeah, Charlie, um, our producer, when we were off air said, and I think it's very true, he's someone who seems unconvincing with everything he said even when he was just talking about, like, his entrepreneurial project. Even the most straightforward question, for some reason, he seemed unconvincing. And he also, he obviously has had zero training or briefing on this because he kept looking at the camera. He kept giving these like sort of nervous David Brent looks to the camera, which again just, I think, was unsettling. And like most people, I mean, the thing that I found most difficult to stomach was his lack of sympathy towards the victims or acknowledgement of the victims really and this kind of flapping defensiveness that was the thing I found most shocking but the thing that I found most irritating is he kept he had the air of arrogance of a man who is convinced that with his own eloquence and charm and education he can Uh, make light of grave situations be conversationally breezy and distract from the gravity of the subject he kept desperately trying to move the atmosphere of the conversation to it being sort of phatic and chatty so even at the beginning when Emily says something like why are we here? And he just blustered. He's like, well, I've been very busy and you've been very busy and we've had a six months of back and forth and here we are. And he's like, like no, that's, that's not why we're here.
0: I loved it when he was like, you know, my schedule's very busy, your schedule's very busy, and you could see Emily Maitlis. I, I felt like what she was thinking in that moment was, I would have dropped anything yes. to do this interview sooner. Like, the idea of Emily Maitlis being like, well, Emily Maitlis is PA. Yeah. Like, or producer. Can't, I'm afraid we can't schedule Prince Andrew this month Let's try again next season like.
1: But that's what I think annoyed me He kicked off with that tone And he kept trying to return to that tone And I found it like it That just fucked me off Because I was like Just stop trying to distract us From the severity of these accusations And your associations The fact he kept using the phrase Funnily enough Oh, interesting. Uh, funnily enough, and it's, this isn't funny. None of this is funny. I don't think
0: that's a tactic. I don't think he's deliberately obfuscating. I- except for sometimes. I think the uh, the not sweating and the PDA and the Pizza Express.
1: And the sort of conversational chatty pauses. I think,
0: I think that was obfuscating. But I also think that he was just out of his depth. I mean, you say he didn't really know how to behave in that interview. Of course he doesn't. The Royal Family aren't used to doing, like news interviews like that mm. the closest thing we've ever seen is princess diana doing that one with martin Bashir. there were three of us in the marriage um which i saw someone said that this has now trumped that as the worst interview to ever happen to the royal family mm. um but he's not used to being interrogated like that and because it's still unclear to a lot of people the role he played i genuinely believe it's still unclear to him to him and I mean, you do you do have to wonder how they ever thought this was a good idea. Presumably his team know him as a person. They know how he's going to hold up in that environment. So was it ever, ever going to go any other way? Perhaps they thought it was unavoidable. Although, I mean, a lot of people have said, <clears throat> why was it on telly anyway? You know, why wasn't it in a police station? But I think he is naturally a bit of a buffoon.
1: Mm. I think
0: if you look at the news stories over the years about him and Fergie and the gaffes, Fergie and Andrew have made a lot of... Bad decisions over the years, which normally concern people who are very, very rich but um, dubious. Obviously, Epstein is more than dubious, but there's the whole fake shake thing. Um, Epstein also paid 15 grand to Fergie's former personal assistant um, to cover part of his unpaid salary. So that they cultivated relationships with people based on their wealth i think says a lot about their blindness towards what is acceptable how much they are protected by their status um i think they're just they're, they're just not used to existing in a modern world i don't i don't think he knows how to be answerable i i don't think he knew how to do that interview any other way
1: that's interesting because i i was frustrated and offended by what i saw to be arrogant distraction techniques in that interview. But it's still I, frustrating it, and offensive, neither of of way. But I'm interested in what you're saying, that, that you don't think that it was as measured as that. It was ignorance and cluelessness.
0: I don't think he went to the Queen the next day buoyant and said it had gone really well as, like, a blatant lie. I think he was yeah. genuinely buoyant and thought it had gone really well. Yeah.
1: He's just clueless. Yeah, it's just, it's so hard as well because in lieu of him presenting actual useful helpful progressive evidence to help the victims in this case sadly what all we can do is like speculate on on the behavior and the psychology and what was implied and what was said in this interview to me it seems like it would be very easy to verify if he was in pizza express that night he has bodyguards this is what i said there will be logbooks. there will be pay stubs for which shifts they worked so that's what I said to my friends, but apparently he said he dropped Beatrice off. So it's not like... Because that's what I in, immediately thought. I was like, surely there will be evidence of yes, him being Yes, but he wouldn't there. have
0: dropped Beatrice off on his own. He'll have a bodyguard with him at all times.
1: All of the immediate royal family do. But I think what that means is it's not like he, there was a duration.
0: No, but there will be a car... Either they'll have someone in the car with him, or there will have been a car following him. And that car following him will have employees that need to be paid. Well, you just hope that this is... doesn't seem beyond the realms of possibility. I know it was 2001, so it was a long time ago, but...
1: The I Peter know. Express thing has really rolled people up, and I have to say as well, just going back to your very valid suggestion that he is just completely removed from any realm of reality, he comes across in that interview as so arrogant and unself-aware when he says, the reason I remember going to Pizza Express Woking is someone like me he doesn't go to Pizza Express Woking... He also talks about spending time with Epstein and he says it wasn't a party. It was a straightforward shooting weekend. And the assumption that anyone even knows what a shooting weekend... I mean, what the fuck is that? What that entails? There was, again, no self-awareness. There's mention of him saying that because he's always surrounded by staff and has been his whole life, it means that he doesn't take note of people that are coming in and out of a house. It is so embarrassing. Like, just speaking as purely a PR... From a PR perspective he's making absolutely no effort at all to seem like he is connected in reality at all like at all so in a way even though how arrogant and hyper privileged and disconnected he is even though that's very offensive it's probably the most truthful
0: Mm. do you know what i mean Mm. the comedian rory brem tweeted something this morning that made me laugh breaking duke of york speaks out I have no recollection of meeting Emily Maitlis. <laughs> Instantly, someone compared that line and impact to Clinton's, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And it's
1: interesting that there's an echo there of the words that woman, because that woman became so synonymous with the arrogance of Clinton to feel that he could dismiss and belittle this woman's, Story and this woman's truth. And at one point in the interview, he refers to Virginia Roberts dismissively as a lady. Public reactions to the interview have been far reaching and uniformly condemning. Politician Chaka Umana said, Andrew has done more to undermine the monarchy than any other person in his lifetime. And he said, Prince Andrew should do the right thing by flying to the US to give evidence or retire from public life. The Duchess of York has said she blames his private secretary, Amanda Thursk for the disastrous interview and that the buck stops with her for allowing the interview to go ahead.
0: I hate it when celebrities do that, sort of outsource any PR disaster to their team. Interestingly, um, Prince Andrew's PR advisor, Jason Steen, actually quit two weeks before the interview because he said the interview was a terrible idea. So there were obviously... Major reservations about mm. him doing this, but also he's a grown man. She also
1: described him as a giant of a principled man. A giant? She also said, as well, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I read that she said, you know, he's never been good at sort of thinking on his feet, so that he should never have done an interview like that. But even then, the implication of thinking on his feet. I think is so telling. And that's something that my friend Lauren pointed out about the interview that I think feels very uncomfortable, is that the accusations that are being made against Prince Andrew are so horrifying. If they were made against you, there would be the number one feeling when defending yourself would be surely absolute horror, dismay, shock and sadness that this accusation has been made against you and an absolute doggedness to get to the truth of the victim's stories and it just felt like that was completely absent throughout the whole interview that's what felt really uncomfortable for me yes
0: he was remarkably sanguine for a man who is arguably um i mean he puts it let the side down Mm. you could say up shit creek without a paddle more (laughs) accurately perhaps (laughs) meanwhile pizza express in woking have been deluged by new reviews um spoof reviews including my favorite pizza express woking is like no other pizza express it's a memory which will never disappear once you visit the woking branch it's amazing the lasting effect a pizza can have on you the pizza is so good from this specific branch it gives you the ability to not only remember what year you visited but the exact day and month truly incredible there's tons of others there as well i wonder if they've seen like an influx of tourists i bet they have
1: (laughs) um question did you want a pizza after watching this or did it put you off pizza for life it did make me think about the dough balls it would be it would be remiss of me not to admit that weirdly i had a pizza before i watched it I don't think I'd have been able to go there after it. Prince Andrew himself has allegedly realised the errors of the interview and has reportedly told friends that he regrets not expressing sympathy for Epstein's victims in the interview. The former press spokesperson for the Queen, Dickie Arbiter, said, we've got to look at the Queen as two people.
0: She is a head of state and also a mother. In private, she'll be looking at her son and asking, did this really happen? In public, she has to be collegiate, but in private, she will really want to know from Andrew what is going on and I found this bit very interesting. And I don't think she's
1: getting the answers. That is very interesting. Maybe maybe your gut instinct is right on this panda. Maybe there is no answers for for anyone from him.
0: I don't think it's going to get tied up with a neat bow,
1: however mm. long it goes on for. There's been some brilliantly incisive commentary on the interview. Camilla Long was as hilarious as she was insightful for the Sunday Times. Andrew said that visiting Epstein's weird giant sex cave in New York in 2010 felt like the honourable and right thing to do. He wanted to break off their friendship like, what, Rep Butler? So he'd gone over to put an end to this titanic CEO man crush in person, or as he hilariously put it, show leadership. He spent four whole days hanging out and partying before he finally managed to dump the sex offender, madly, in public. If only he hadn't been photographed strolling around with Epstein, he wouldn't have to explain that he had no recollection of ever meeting this lady. He wouldn't have had to swear his fingers were fat in a pathetic attempt to discredit a photo. He wouldn't have had to shamelessly offer up his own daughter, Princess Beatrice, as an alibi. He wouldn't have had to claim that on March 10th, 2001, he was in Pizza Express and woking with her at a party. He never parties but this is how far he has fallen. Licking dough balls at Pizza Express in Woking. What an epic self-annulment this was. To quote him, he let the side down simple as that. Camilla is, I think, the perfect writer to tackle a subject like this because she's so good at acknowledging the absurdity of the situation while also impressing on us the seriousness of what this story is. And
0: I think it's totally possible to do both. Mm. Elizabeth Day wrote for the Mail, Prince Andrew wasn't thinking when he invited the television cameras into Buckingham Palace. He wasn't thinking about how ill-equipped he is to do a primetime television interview with that most forensic of inquisitors, Emily Maitlis. He's probably never watched an episode of Newsnight in his life. He wasn't thinking about these people who might quite reasonably ask where a man accused of sleeping with a 17-year-old sex slave and hanging out with a convicted child sex offender was giving his first interview to a television crew rather than to the police. Prince Andrew was not thinking of the female victims at all.
1: Suzanne Moore for The Guardian, like Elizabeth Day, was similarly shocked by his lack of awareness of anyone other than himself. Why this interview is conducted in a palace and not a police station still makes little sense to me. This is what it means to be born to rule, to overblink in the headlights of a simple question, but to not bat an eyelid at the systematic abuse of young women. This is what entitlement looks like. Shabby, dodgy and scared as hell. The country stares back at this dissolute man in blank disgust. I think Suzanne Moore put it perfectly and I think in a way this interview has done some good in that it has showcased a still ever-present threat in a world where sexual harassment and abuse is beginning to be uncovered and justice sought, which is men in positions of power who are more concerned with protecting their reputation than they are in seeking out the truth.
0: What did you think of Prince Andrew's interview? It was the conversation that blew up every WhatsApp group. So you can get in touch with us at show at gmail.com or tweet us at Show if you would like to share your thoughts. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye.